0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm happy to be joined today by Lindsay Borgon. She's a writer, an oral historian, and a 2018 National Geographic Explorer. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic and The Guardian, among other outlets, and she's here now to talk about her first book. It's called Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, and it comes out in paperback today from little Brown Spark. Lindsay Borgan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, this is such a fascinating topic, tree poaching and and uh, but it also kind of has the air of like a topic that was sort of like environmentalism in the in 90s, you know, kind of Captain Planet sort of thing where we have these you could imagine this is like you know the good the good environmentalists versus the evil plundering, you know poachers. and but your book in, in your hands, there, it's so much more way way, way more nuanced and and complicated than that. And it's really, really such an enticing read. Um, but I wonder for folks that aren't thinking about poaching in, in public lands um, very often, and uh, if could you start just giving us a sense of the scale of the problem um, of timber poaching and, and how big you no know, the market is and who's buying it? And I, I wonder, like, how likely is it that I've ever come in contact with poached wood, for instance?
1: Oh, I mean, that's a great question. And I might answer that in two sort of parts. So... Um... Tree poaching in national parks and in um, North America, at least, uh, is more common than you, than you might think. So um, I think the U.S. Forest Service has estimated that it costs them about $20 million a year, um, you know, in terms of revenue that maybe they would have uh, had themselves had they done the logging themselves. Um, the Park Service doesn't keep stats on this, but they but you know, it does happen at national parks as well. Um in uh sort of countrywide, I suppose. So that's beyond just uh public lands. Uh so you know, poaching from from private timberlands and, and other sorts of forests, you know, in, in all sorts of ways that they're managed. It's actually valued at about a billion dollars a year. So it is uh, quite common. The, the National Park Service says it's a problem in every forest in the United States. Um, where I live in Canada, uh, it, you know, in BC alone, I think they valued in at about 20 million, although I might have to uh, revamp that number. Some point. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more common that you might think that people are stealing trees or parts of trees or downed wood, or what have you globally it's it's part of a huge uh huge market of international wildlife trade so timber actually falls underneath this kind of umbrella and you might think of the wildlife trade as rhino horns and elephant tusks and you know um pangolin scales or the fur of, of a poached tiger or things like you know things like that get bare gallbladder is a is a huge one but timber is right, right up there. I mean, uh, it is a highly trafficked commodity. Uh, it is very valuable. It's often, um, it's often kind of considered on par with like drug drug trafficking and and these kind of much larger organized crime networks. Uh, and actually, I think that it's in that format and in that global perspective that it is most likely to enter your home. Um, a lot of us, the wood in our homes is actually not from where we live, um, and so due to these sorts of like large global systems that we have, um, you know, it's not unlikely that the wood in your homes is illegal. I mean, there are companies, uh, very recognizable names like IKEA and Home Depot and uh, Gibson Guitar that have been found to be trafficking or selling. I found to be selling uh poached wood. They there are various levels of admission to this, you know, like whether they know it or not. But uh yeah, if it's in your house, it's most likely uh, you know, not grown in North America, which I think is kind of interesting. Um yeah. So that's that's the scale of it. I mean it's highly local and highly global at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And we'll get into some of the murkiness of of who knows what where this stuff is coming from? In a few minutes, to follow the this, the architecture of the book, you begin historically. Um, and when my eight year old saw the title of your book, Tree Thieves, he said, "That sounds like Robin Hood." And indeed, Robin Hood shows up early in the book, which is great Good
1: for him. Yes, he's uh,
0: he's be- here, the
1: king's wood. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and there's even there's even a great quote you have it goes it goes further back in time from uh, it's uh, Diana Beresford Kroger, the bio- botanist and writer who says trees and the forest had more legal protections 2,000 years ago in the Celtic world than today. And so I wonder, thinking way back into the medieval and ancient worlds, what from that time and and that kind of the long history of forest law do you think is helpful for us to know today to inform policymaking?
1: Oh, what a great, like, that is such a great question. So, um, and this is something that really jazzed me when I was writing the book, you know, like I just, I was, my mind was kind of blown because I was learning about, uh, you know, for instance, the Charter of the Forest, uh, which was introduced around the same time as the Magna Carta, and, and in that sort of era, um, rights to the forest, rights to the to using of the forest in particular, were enshrined in through the Charter of the Forest, which had to be read out loud on church steps or, or you know community squares four times a year, um, and basically this this document outlined the fact that. Um, that people had a common right to the spoils of the forest, so that is everything from firewood uh, to you know um, sort of respond. what we would identify now is responsible harvest or sustainable harvest of things like deer or um, fish. You know, uh, uh, the ability to graze your animals on on acorns on the forest floor literally it was going that specific. Um, and yeah, within that was that was the, was the sort of outline, right? That you had the ability to go in and, and take down wood for firewood or to cut down a tree for uh, building things or to burn to, for, to make food, you know? Like it really outlined um, the, all of these ways that wood has been used. Um, and with the sorting sort of closing of enclosure, uh, enclosure of the commons, you know, enclosure more broadly, um, those rights became hotly contested, often ignored, uh, because powerful landowners and the monarchy and what have you came in and enclosed land and, and removed access of that land from common use. Um, and and you know, this is like you're you're mentioning Robin Hood, so tale is tale is old as time. Really, you know, people are upset about that, and they they begin poaching. Um, And when I learned about this, I saw some serious uh, parallels to the way that poachers that I was interviewing were were kind of learning about, um, were seeing themselves and their own use in today's world. And so I think that we, for very good reason, look at national parks and say, these are beautiful, unspoiled, um, public lands that we, that humans are, you know, should not be allowed to touch, to use, to harvest from. But uh, actually, you know, even before the poachers that I was interviewing for this book, I mean, that was land that Indigenous peoples were were using and stewarding for millennia. And um, I think that our conservation politics, you know, they have changed, of course, you know, since the early national parks and forests were formed they never really took into account um, use, the tradition of use, the need for trees and the fact that um, there are all sorts of reasons why a tree is useful and beautiful and it's not always that a tree is beautiful just because it stands and it's not always that it's useful just in the sort of ecological sense um, but that people are part of that wilderness and that they identify and need the woods in ways that um, that use is a part of and that common use you know we can we don't really think of it the same way in North America as might in Europe or, or England in particular but uh, it's all kind of wrapped up in that and so I became really interested in the fact that what I was hearing poachers tell me echoed a lot of essentially commons history <laughs> from from back in medieval time or or, or you know later um and, yeah, so that's why I included that, basically, in the book, because I, I thought, you know, not only can you not really ignore Robin Hood when you're talking about poaching, but uh, there, were some, there were some real interesting precedents in those early times that I think echo today's world.
0: Yeah, and, and the, book, the book focuses geographically on kind of the, the stretch of Pacific Northwest from Redwood Country in the Bay Area up through British Columbia. Um, where, you're, um, where you're living now. And to look at that early period of, of kind of the modern conservation politics there in the turn of the 20th century, for instance, you have, you have, so, many, you have so many great characters in this book, um, contemporary and historical. And one of them that I wonder if I could ask you to talk about as, as sort of a, a, to get us into this period here is Enoch Percival French. Um, how, who is this fellow? How does he always understand this kind of early period of conservation in Northern California?
1: Yeah, thank you uh, for for asking this. Actually, no one has asked me about Enoch French, but I think of him all the time. Yeah, so <laughs> Enoch French was one of the first, if not the first, uh, park ranger in a You know, at the time it was a California state park uh, in Northern California, and what is now Humboldt County. Um, it wasn't not yet a national park uh, when he became uh, when he became the the sort of head head of the park there, the head ranger. And, you know, Enoch uh, French, he, uh, he was, I, and just because I think your listenership will care, I, I, everything I know about him, or a lot of what I know about him, is is thankfully from this kind of series of oral history interviews that are held at University of California, Berkeley. Um, and this one woman named Amelia Fry, who I just owe, I would, if she were still alive, I would, I'd be worshiping at her feet. Because um, she did all of these oral history interviews of just, anyway, set the ground. Um, and uh, so he he was a logger before he took on this job, and his dad was a logger. And, you know, part of this real history that's really rooted in the Pacific Northwest of, of settlers and colonialists uh, that came west. Uh, and, and they were just logging as they went, you know. And eventually they hit Northern California, and la- the last hill as they called it, but, you know, over the last hill. Um, and logging down these last trees and he got to know this park really well this region really well and um, he was a logger and a um, cruiser a tree cruiser before he became the ranger and a tree cruiser is responsible works for a company or or possibly the state uh, and is responsible for essentially valuing how much timber is in a specific region so uh, you know, they'd get their their sort of coordinates of where they're going, and they'd walk around and essentially use methods to measure up trees and say, this has a million board feet worth in it. So you get a sense of the financial value that way. Um, and then he became in charge of protecting these trees, you know, which I think is really part of the complicated history of this region and every every sort of forested region, which is that many families end up somewhere to extract and then may end up protecting in the wake of that extraction and uh but what what really um what really interested in me in him is not only his amazing stories because he had like a thousand but the fact that he admitted in one of these interviews you know he was like yeah, when I was a logger or even when I was like an early day ranger, sure I'd go out to the park and take down a tree if I needed one. You know, sure I knew how to take that down and to harvest firewood and like way back in the day kind of like put it in the river and 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 you know, have a boom and and transport it down to where uh transport it down to where I needed to use it. And so here you had somebody who really lived at the confluence of this of this contemporary uh, um conflict that i was writing about which is that you know the the ranger versus the poacher the the logging family versus the park um somebody who loves the environment and has benefited from its destruction all happening once like through this through this man and um what compelled me about him was that he never really in these interviews he never really tried to justify one side or the other like they both existed at the same time within him and and he wasn't sometimes um sometimes I think like, okay, so for instance, in the past, I've done oral history interviews with former whalers. Um, So, you know, whaling ended in 1963, like relatively recently. And so a lot of those whalers I interviewed, you know, they felt the need to say to me, like, I do feel guilt now, you know, or I apologize now, or I do feel bad now. And that's, fine that's within their right but Enoch French was not apologizing either way and I thought that was really interesting right like he wasn't he didn't feel at the time of his interview that he was wrong in either side um and so you know again he just very very coastal person in that way he lived with those um with that conflict within him
0: I, I, we'll get to your contemporary reporting, which is the heart of the book. But I, if you'll indulge me one more historical,
1: yeah, question. yeah, please. As oh. much as I'm mean, happy to talk about it, because uh, I I think the book has benefited from having like quite a catchy contemporary element to it. But like the history is what made me think it could be a book. Right? Is doing all of the research and realizing not only does poaching have this like crazy past and and fascinating political kind of implications, that this has been going on for. Ever. <laughs> Forever, ever. And the poachers that you hear about now, like they walk in the in the steps of poachers from hundreds and hundreds of years ago.
0: So totally. Obviously a, a really canonical event in in the recent history in the eighties here was the terror wars in the Pacific Northwest. Um and then you also enlightened me to learn about the Canadian kind of um corollary, or the war in the woods. It's called in British Columbia. Um, and it's always, this is a really canonical event in kind of my upbringing as far as, you know, kind of getting us our dead-end jobs versus the environment sort of politics of the late 80s and 90s that I kind of came up with. But um, but at the, at the same time, I, I, poaching wasn't itself at the, at the heart of that necessarily. There was a tiny owl and other things at the heart of it. Um, but kind of what, how, how do we think about these these moments if we, if we look through amends lens of, of, of poaching?
1: Yeah, so um, when I first started hearing about poaching, um tree poaching in particular i want to say i mean there's poaching all sorts of other plant life and animal. um i had a google alert set up as i as as i do um and i was like okay this is happening in washington and Northern california and sometimes in oregon like i could just see these trends coming in and um into my inbox and i was reading about it and i started doing interviews uh with you know kind of starting generally with investigators and rangers and on the law enforcement side of things. Because at first I thought that that would be my narrative through line. Um and none of them said this uh to be cruel or harsh, but you know, I would say, why is why is this happening? Uh in Oregon or or wherever and they would say, We just have a lot of poverty here. We have a lot of poverty. If you look at where this um if you look at where these crimes are taking place, it's around these old former mill towns, former mill towns have uh, towns that are economically depressed, that are so socially struggling. um, And that's where this is happening. Uh, They were not wrong. Um, And so, you know, you start asking yourself, like, how did we get to this point? Um, I also knew from reading about poaching and then also eventually hearing it from poachers themselves that um, one of the motivations for poaching was not simply money. Uh, but resentment and anger toward conservation um, structures, you know, it, it wasn't really voiced to me that way, you know, it always be like the park, we hate the park, we hate the federal government. And I was like, okay, well, where's this coming from, you know, particularly with the younger poachers, and really realizing that they had grown up in families and communities that had that were at the center of this conflict that for years they lived in communities that relied on resource extraction. And those communities were portrayed particularly in the media or or within other circles as backward and wrong and maybe stupid, you know? Um, Like there was a lot of rhetoric around the type of people that lived there and the type of work that they did and why they did it. um, And that that might be lingering you know, that was kind of my, my I guess my hypothesis or my question was, how much does anger from this moment in history have a role in, in what's happening now? Um, and so I followed I followed that through and you know, for some of the for some of the people it was the main driver. <laughs> for other people it was just part of what they grew up with, you know. So you'd say like, Do you remember the early Early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, and what it was like in this town. Yeah, it was bad. You know, was I remember my uncles being mad all the time. For instance, right? like that's the type of feedback I was hearing. Um, so it was kind of this both of those both of those inroads from the timber wars that that really interests me. So not just like the, the trickle down effect of what happens to small. Communities when their only source of income is either phased out or or just immediately halted, uh, and also the emotional aspect. It
0: was it was supposed to go differently, right? Your I mean, your book has so much to offer. Thinking about post industrial places and bridging bridging the past and the present. You show, for instance, with, with, yeah. go Sorry, yes. Yeah,
1: sorry to interrupt you, but when you say it was supposed to go differently, I like I think that's really interesting because was it like I don't you know, like I don't know if at the time I don't I don't know how much that was on the radar. I don't know how much that was like actually
0: explored. I, uh, I was struck by the echo around in the past and the present around the, the promise of tourism, right? That even back in the, city of the Redwoods League. They were saying, you know, that we'll, we'll, have, we'll have public money that'll help the loggers out after we stop letting them log until such time as which the tourist income is so high that they don't need that anymore. And then, and then you show in that in that um, there was the hundred the hundred economists signing the, the pledge that became part of the 2022 biodiversity um, conference, the COP 15 there, the UN's thing, saying you know, we're going to preserve 30 percent of the world's land and water, um, but it'll be fine because the ecotourism will essentially be a huge new source of revenue. And you you write very beautifully about how Orc California this um census designated place um you know is is one of the most breathtakingly beautiful places in the world and yet you know there are there's not the kind of infrastructure you would have expected to see there for a tourist town what why not why, why didn't it come to pass what are the barriers we don't think of when we think about ecotourism is the future i don't know
1: well first of all service economies do not pay as well as resource economies and they never will uh, with the way that we're going now and so it's one thing to say that and it's another thing to imply or to believe uh, that uh, working a retail job is gonna pay you as much as uh, even a boot, like even working four months out of the year on a resource economy it just doesn't work out that way uh, asking people to rely on tips for instance is it's not going to allow them to like live. The life that perhaps their parents or grandparents or whoever was living. I think that something that maybe what and this is me, this might just my own opinion because I think some historians might might differ here. I think that the fact that the tourism in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California is highly centralized around Highway 101 makes it actually easier for people to just drive through places. Um, and not have to stop at uh, it's pretty easy to just go wow how beautiful and that's it you know um i have you know i think um you just you hear this a lot and and yeah you mentioned the the sort of 30 by 2030 pledge um there's also just anytime you hear about any sort of de-industrialization like i'm i'm from a place in Canada I live in BC but I'm from a province called Alberta which is um, you know people call it the Texas of Canada it's oil and gas right oil and gas and um, when it's particularly northern Alberta and so a lot of those communities um, I think are, have already been kind of encouraged to diversify their tourism and I think I just think yeah it can do that but I think that's unfair to them You know, I think that that these communities deserve more than just being told, like, don't worry, people will want to come here. It's like, it's not that simple, right? Um, And it's not that easy to get to. It's the same as Northern California. It isn't that, like, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here. But uh, I just think that, um, yeah, the promise of tourism has been consistent across economies, uh, you know, across particularly resource economies when we talk about detransition. Consistently through history, those econ- those those people are told it's beautiful here, and people will want to come visit. And and it very rarely uh, works out that way. But, um, you know, I think it's I couldn't. I mean, let's try and think together. Somewhere whose economy has been totally saved by tourism. No, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm time.
0: I want to come back to this too when we get into some of the characters in your story, but um. To, to, to zoom back a little bit and to think about your your initial kind of uh, entry into the topic with thinking about law enforcement and following around law enforcement, um, one of the things you get reading this book is just, I mean, just some sense of like, how do they ever catch any poachers? How does any poachers, <laughs> poaching seems incredibly hard. I mean, you can have any, any kind of law you want, but how do you actually make it, how do you enforce it? And so, you know, what are some of the things that make poaching so difficult, make, make sorry, catching poachers and enforcing, enforcing these laws so difficult?
1: Well, okay, so if you want to think about it in terms of the community, the communities that this tends to kind of orbit around. Um, So they are farmer logging communities, usually. Um, Most poaching happens at night in the forest. Almost all poaching happens at night by people that have lived in those communities for their entire lives. And so those are folk that know paths in that the rangers might not know. They, in, in the case of Oric, they knew a ranger's schedules. They knew, <laughs> uh, you know, because it's such a small town that you can kind of, like, if you're interested in in doing this crime, you, you're watching people come and go. You're getting a sense of, okay, at this time of night, they've only got three people working. And so, you know, they always have to have two people there. So it's going to be less likely to find me. Um, okay, so if I'm a poacher, I go in at night. I know where I'm going because I've scoped it out. Because I spend so much time in the woods, that I know like where a really good log is, and I know where 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 Burl, for instance. Um, I know where the trail is that leads to it. I know how to what sort of equipment I need to take it down. Um, I have access to a truck and a driver, most likely. Um, and I think the, the kind of crucial element in, in how it's hard to catch them is that it's both difficult to find a crime scene and then by the time you have, which is often through luck, that product, that um, the, the stolen item has already been sold and disappeared. So you're trying to match the stolen goods to the crime scene itself. And that is really, really hard. So most crime, most poaching sites are found, like I said, by accident by people that have stumbled upon it while on a hike, while doing research. Um, and when in 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 most cases, okay, you and I are out there and we notice that there's a stump that wasn't there the last time we walked this trail, uh, and we know that it's in the park and it shouldn't have been taken. So maybe we go to the park office and we say, "I want to report this." They go out, they take all the information that they need from you. And they're going to start thinking, okay, if it was a redwood that was taken, where is this likely to go? And who do we know in the surrounding area that might've taken it? And really they rely on informants. That ends up being the uh, the sort of tool in their tool chest (laughs) that's really going to help them out the most uh, because the chances that the wood has already been moved is really high.
0: And even oh. just what, in many cases, once it's milled, it's it's.
1: Yeah, it's I crazy. mean, if you think about it, how do you match grain to grain? It's it's very difficult. I'm. There is a case in the book where they did that, which is quite amazing, right? So they went to a barrel shop or like a wood artisan wood shop, and they took a photo. And then they drove back and walked the trail to the poaching site, and they were like, This grain matches this grain. That happened once, though, you know. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. <That's laughs> every single time. So, exception I, is the rule. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, law enforcement has has been park rangers have uh, really been trying all these different methods to figure this out. So, they hide, you know, I think they've, they've done sort of studies where they've plotted out where poaching cases like have taken place and then they've gone into the woods and looked for like what they would see as high value wood and they put cameras facing those trees to kind of, you know, hopefully catch somebody in the act or to dissuade somebody because it is very common that poachers will know that the cameras are there uh, and, or they put um, motion detected uh, rumble strips essentially under the ground that will, that when a vehicle drives over, it will alert them. Um but I think those are flashy and cool, uh, but they the informant system is what has borne out uh as actually working. so yeah
0: one of the facts that will stick with me from the book is is that compared with FBI agents and border control agents Forest Service agents stand a risk have, have a higher risk of physical violence on the job or you know Park rangers, park rangers.
1: Uh, particularly in Redwoods, which is considered one of the most dangerous parks in, in North America uh, for various region, reasons. Um, but yeah, they are they are second to FBI uh, officers in terms of danger. Uh,
0: hmm. Yeah. What did you uh, learn about spending time with them? What did you learn about the kind of people that choose to do this work?
1: On the ranger front? Yeah. Um, you know, it's really interesting because... Particularly in the context of the national park system, that is a federal agency. And so um, actually just to rewind a little bit, I mean, you and I, most likely you and I, are thinking of park rangers uh, maybe a little bit stereotypically, and we're thinking of a tan uniform and a, and a tripoint hat. And you, they're friendly. They have a friendly reputation in our circles. And they're like, welcome to this amazing place uh do you have any questions about where the spotted owl or you know like these amazing like uh, the sequoias um and please let me know if you never like they're just like a friendly bank and they might like sell you your camping spot or something like that you know um they are law enforcement so uh rangers are armed uh not all of them when they apply from what i understand when you apply. To so become a park ranger, you choose if you want to go the educational or the law enforcement route. And uh, the park rangers that I got to know in Redwoods, um, you know, they carried AR-15s and they carried uh, they carry in their trucks they had those, and then on their hips they had uh, you know sort of cop weaponry, so like pepper spraying, batons, and things. Um, and they were bulkered vests, and they they patrolled the you know like in big trucks, or not big in, in in trucks the way that you might patrol like a police officer, and they investigate things that happen in the park, and they monitor what's going on in the park. Um, and I think that that is a difference. Uh, that difference in in employment is one thing for you and I as visitors to the park, but if you live in a park community, that's that's a big part of your understanding of what's uh what the park is doing um and so in Oric, this town in northern california they saw park rangers as monitoring them and they saw them as patrolling the town like law enforcement and um they saw them as pulling them over um you know if they if they suspected that they might have wood, like wood in their trunk uh, searching their cars and things like that um and so i think that's important, um, and. Uh, The rangers that I got to know, and I just, you know, always want to put out that I really respected them, and um, they were honest, and they wanted to talk about the challenges of things that are going on in the backwoods of this land that they're trusted with, and they have a really impossible job, which is that, like, there's a highway that goes through Redwoods, for instance, but Redwoods itself stretches much further back from that. It's impossible for them to patrol that land. You like by foot or by truck or in any way, and they're they're in charge of it. That's really hard, and people do stuff on that land that is dangerous and illegal. Uh, At the same time, uh, they can get search warrants to enter people's homes, and they can be intimidating. That's for sure. And I think you know something that was really interesting that was brought up to me by poacher is that often they are they're just not from the area and they they tend not to live in the gateway communities. um so Oric is a, you know, a town right on the southern edge of redwoods and it's a gateway community you have to drive through it to get into the park uh and the rangers are not living there they're not part of the community there often anyway um and one of the rangers who i followed was from northern california he wasn't technically from that town but the, the superintendent who was who is a lovely person you know he he was from the East Coast. He worked in Philadelphia. He worked at Shenandoah National Park. And he transferred in. And it was his job to manage the problems of the park, you know, in quotes. And I think that there was a certain impatience with the fact that he just wasn't from, you know. Uh, and he had been transferred in like, like any other sort of public servant um, and asked to do something that was a, actually a really local problem um, that he I mean, that's impossible. It's an impossible task. right? Um, so I I understood um, the misgivings around sort of the approach that the Park Service as an organization was taking to solve the problem. Um, and yeah, they're, they're law enforcement. <laughs> There's actually a pretty interesting history of, you know, I, again, I, you know, this was my own sort of ignorance going into this, but. Because I've had one experience of parks, right? And I mean, there's history of, of park rangers kind of roughing up folks in Yosemite <laughs> or Yellowstone, and um, you know, having a very narrow view of what is allowed to happen on public land, um, and and using force to to, uh, to make to enforce that.
0: One of the, the latest tools that you chronicle the development of in in trying to combat poaching is um, is DNA testing and and mass mass spectrometry, which and I couldn't couldn't decide reading the book whether I, this is like what a cool solution to this very difficult problem or whether this is just an absurd kind of attempt to sort of solve an unsolvable problem. Um, and I just if you could say a bit about you know, the origins of these technologies and are they you know what, what what how how big a role do you expect them to play in the future?
1: I think that they can play a really important role in um, the global trade in particular, because there's a really massive challenge there, which is that the wood that you and I might use to build our deck is ending up in Home Depot where we buy it, but you know it's going through ports where it's already been milled and put into shipping containers. And like, how is a border agent meant to look at that wood and say, I think that might be illegally harvested from Peru, you know, like, it's just, it's like way too much to ask from, from one person and one organization. And this is something that DNA testing and mass spec, as they call it, uh, and those databases that they're developing can really narrow in on, um, as poaching continues in North America, um, there is a real hope that the database will also kind of, um, you know, hold, Important information of these sort of North American species that are that are traded, so redwood, Douglas fir, cedar, uh, eastern uh, walnut, black walnut, um, oaks, some oaks, uh, the tulip tree. Um, those are relatively small parts of the trade, and I, you know, I don't think that there's an appetite on the sort of local front. To invest too much in getting that done, and I, you know, I'm not. I don't really know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I know that like there's a real focus on on just these highly traded international species, Uh, but um, I think what's interesting about it is, you know, I think in the book I detail Rich Cron and how he was a big. He he is a scientist at a laboratory in Corvallis, Oregon, and he uh, was able to testify at a at a hearing uh, because a tree poacher in Washington state had actually started an absolutely massive forest fire uh, through these actions. And he was a tree poacher, not unlike, you know, like, quote unquote, small time kind of poacher um, who, who started this entire kind of environmental crisis through what he did. And tree DNA was able to essentially convict him for starting that crime. Uh, or sorry for starting that fire. So, I mean, it is, it's not that it's useless in North America, but I think in terms of the trade of wood itself and not these other sort of broader crimes, I'm not sure what the appetite is to like really focus on North American, e.g. not like. So unless something happens where all of a sudden there's just like a tree that's grown here that's just like insanely valuable, you know, I'm sure that would change things a little bit.
0: And in, in the book, you follow the commodity chain to South South America and, and to Peru. And what did you learn from that travel that helps you inform this study?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned a ton. I think um, it was important for me to do that because as much as I was really interested in these small local stories, like you can't really talk about poaching if you're not going to talk about what's going on in the global South because that is mass deforestation and illegal logging on a scale that we just don't know here. Um, and also I think, um, it's interesting because most of our products come from that logging as opposed to, to local wood. And so, um, in a sense that's, we can actually do more on that scale <laughs> than at home. Um, and so I, you know, I went down and I was doing interviews about, um, experiences of timber poaching and, and, um, experiences of sort of. Land grabs, I suppose, in the Peruvian Amazons. Um, And, you know, I write in the book that something that really sticks out to me now and then is that the motivations um, for tree poaching or timber poaching in both places uh, really echoed one another. And so um, the poaching off, off land in Peru, when I was asking people, why is this happening? The answer was almost always money. People know, you know, this is people that need work, that need income, and they know how to use a chainsaw, they feel comfortable with it, and they they know where to take it and they need they need money to live as much as you and I do. And, you know, that's exactly what I was hearing in Oric and Forks, Washington and these other places. And so, um, you know, in particular, I actually was shown that the poachers were, were no longer there. They had been caught and, and tried already, but um, I was able to go out to a poaching site um, in the Amazon and they were showing me this sort of tent encampment that was there. And uh, I looked at it and then uh, later, so I came back to North America, I'd taken my notes and then I went out on a patrol with these AC resource officers um, and they were like, we're going to show you this tent encampment where poachers are living and I was like this looks very similar to what I saw in Peru the species of tree is different but here you have technically squatters living on public land or private land cutting down trees and taking it into the mill uh you know and it just you know I thought here here we have this echo you know and, um, of, of motivation uh and sadness in the, the socioeconomic situation uh, you know i think in peru people were telling me you know we have all these economic migrants that are coming into peru and a lot of people know how to log and they just kind of come in and they, they set up camp and they start working the logging here and i mean you can't i find it very hard to fault any culture that's doing that you know because nobody's doing that because they want to really
0: You've opened the book with an epigraph from the great Raymond Williams on kind of the the, the intertwined human and culture and the impossibility of pulling those things apart. And you, and you can in your conclusion you have this great line where you say that separating nature from human use has never kept it safe. And so I wonder here, um, looking back, then what does a forest conservation that doesn't rely on that dichotomy between nature and culture that isn't fortress conservation? What, what would that look like?
1: Yeah, it's a good. I think it looks different all over the world. And actually, I'm hoping to. To explore this more in the future. But um, I do write about community forests uh, at the end of the book there. You know, I'm, I'm always cautionary to caution to say, like, I don't think there's like a perfect solution. But um, I think they, you know, there's a community forest in my community. And, and the, the idea behind this was that it was once logging land. Um, and rather than the province uh, engulfing it into a provincial park, for instance, the community where I live bought it. It's managed by, by a board. Um, and when you go into this forest, you know, it's, there's paths. There's a river that runs through it. There are stumps because there is selective logging that happens. And there there's like a university research station that operates out of this, this land. And so you have three uses all happening at once and they you know they have a responsibilities or they, they outline their own responsibility which is that if there's a tree that needs to be taken down for whatever reason they hire local people to do that the proceeds from the you know so that local people are being paid directly um for this skill because i live in a former mill town and the mill has you know very slowly shut down um and you know I'll give you one guess as to as to what they thought will replace it uh in our economy which is tourism um and you know but i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of people around town that like made their made their careers and built their homes and moved here because they worked in the woods and they they maybe they drove a logging truck and they drove those logs to the mill outside town every day and that mill might be closed down but those folks are still here and so the community forest kind of gives certainly not the same amount of security as those mill jobs maybe at one time did but it still allows people to use those skills to do what they like to do some you know if you want if you need firewood which is a really big uh, part of why people poach uh, for their own use um and it's also a big part of life in the pacific northwest and in other places there are a lot of people in my town that uh, heat their homes by wood that is their primary source of of heating um, and you know you can you can apply for a permit to go harvest your firewood, um, and you're not going to get arrested for it, <laughs> which I think is kind of an interesting, you know, point of view, I guess. Uh, but there's you know, and and I but I try to counter that by saying there's a there's a community forest, uh, you know, a couple hours west of me that had a poaching problem. So they knew that there were people in the community that were poaching from the area. But you know what I think is uh, interesting is that when I called them and I was like, okay. So you have poaching happening. It's happening all along this road. And they said, well, you know, the thing is, is that we know who's doing it and we approach them and we offer that if they want to approach the wood, they should just ask or they want to take the wood. They need to just ask us and they can take it. And we think that that will work differently. And I was like, oh yeah. So, you know, you immediately don't arrest them. I feel like that might be one part of it is that, you know, you're not like going right away to like, and we're going to charge you and we're going to, you know, you'll have like, whatever like illegal harvest on your, on your record. You know, they just said we approach them because we know who they are and we know why they need it. We said, why don't you come on this day and take what you need instead of coming in the dead of night and taking the same thing. And so, you know, that's a little bit more flexible problem solving than uh, a government agency can do. Um, You know, because if you think about it, um, the systems that we have with, with these, Federal and state level conservation, they'd have to be approved on so many different levels where they can just go up to somebody and say, Hey, don't do that anymore. Hey, like, I know that you need that, but let's figure out right. another way. So.
0: The hardcover version of the book came out last year. I'm curious what the reception has been like in the places you wrote about and, and beyond.
1: Yeah, I, um, <laughs> that's a good question. I've heard, uh, I've heard from a, a few of the people in the book who uh, have been. Uh, very supportive and um, have been kind. I uh, I've heard from some folk who were not uh, too happy about it, which is kind of part of the part of the deal. Um, but overall, I I've just been really thankful that people seem to uh, have 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 been interested in what you know this this story I was trying to tell and these ideas that I'm trying to put out there. And um, I've been very thankful. For that um and yeah it's i mean Tree weeks has done way better than i ever expected it would do just because you know to me this was for a long time my kind of funny obsession with why people took trees um and why people poached and yeah like robin hood and all of these sort of funny weird you know what it you know what it's like it's when you get into something historical that you're like you can't let go of and people are looking at you kind of like oh my god She's obsessed, you know, and I, I I, am and was obsessed uh, with, like, people taking trees from, like, the king's forest in the 1700s. And, like, the fact that they had to go to a special, like, forest court and all of this stuff. Um, And thankfully, I have, you know, heard from readers who were really into it. Um, And that has been my favorite part by far is just people have come up to me. At, like festivals or you know events or whatever and they just said do you oh i'm really into this and like do you do you know about this historical thing and like being able to nerd out um has yeah like it sounds yeah it's just it fills your heart you know where you're just like yeah i i love this too um and yeah kind kind readers are are the point of it but um i you know in terms of in terms of the reception yeah it's been interesting like in terms of the sources themselves it's been uh,
0: kind of... sure yeah well i hope i hope the paperback gets you lots more readers and, and to nerd out with and all that um when when your schedule allows you to i wonder if you if there are any current or future projects you're willing to preview for us before i let you
1: Yeah. Go. well i'm going back into my weird sort of you know i was saying that i'm that i'm to um or that i'm following these ideas of community conservation and that i'm again, because I'm a bit of a odd duck, so I'm interested in um, the clearances, the Scottish clearances, um, if you've done any reading on that, and uh, there is, <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's a uh, I don't know how much time we have for me to get into this, but anyway, um, there's uh, a law in Scotland or, or sort of act called the Land Reform Act, and it was when Scotland uh, gained not uh, they devolved from, from Westminster. And this was one of the big acts that they put forward, which is essentially, um, yeah, it's land reform. And it, it comes in the wake of understanding that, um, that colonial history in Scotland removed people from the land that they had traditionally crofted and farmed and fished. Uh, and it allows communities to buy back land that have had been taken from them in the, in that, uh, in that era if they can come up with this sort of assessed value and so a lot of communities have bought back hunting estates and uh or frankly entire mountains or entire hills and things like this and they manage them uh, community uh focused rather than um just a single owner um and so because i'm really into the commons and dispossession and kind of people's relationship historically with um with the land that they're from and um this idea of, of use developing a relationship and, um, and all of that, I could go on and on, you know, uh, you know, it's like, uh, how do we have reparations for like environmental crimes that weren't technically crimes, but like environmental dispossession in the past. And, and is there any way that we can actually address, like look at it and see it, what it for what it was and address it uh, is is can the law help us with that? I don't know. You know. Anyway, asking all of these questions that that's where I'm that's where I'm going at the moment. But it's very un. It's still a sort of glob in my brain. It's not very uh, formed yet.
0: It's a very exciting glob. Did you hear that, Scottish land reform nerds? Get, yeah, get, get ready for this project. Yep, yeah, reach out.
1: No, yeah, no. Uh, my email is on my website. Please reach out to me because, um, yeah, I'm I'm in the I'm in the thick of it. I have some plans for some field work, and uh, I'm deep in keeping my reading as you do um and uh yeah if you're i think it actually applies beyond just scotland you know um i think we're having these we're hearing these questions all the time now um about okay there was an injustice there is an, a continued injustice and is there a way to make it right or do we just kind of live with it as the way things are and um you know here's one way that one small country is thinking about it. Um, and and maybe that can be applied to, to other places as well. So anyway,
0: yeah. So com- so compelling and okay, so enticing. Thanks. But for the time being, we will, we will satisfy ourselves with this book, which oh, again yeah, is thanks. called, it's called Tree <laughs> Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. It comes out in paperback today from Little Brown Spark. And its author is, and my guest has been, Lindsay Borgon. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time and for this book.
1: Thank you for having me.